this special Kentucky Derby edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Why would a New Hampshire-based media outlet be doing a Kentucky Derby podcast? Well, it turns out that I, oh, by the way, I'm your host, Michael Graham. I'm the managing editor of NHJournal.com. I'm the guy who comes on the podcast every week's week and thanks you for subscribing to our free newsletter, for just $4.99 a month, almost every day, new people subscribe. Oh, it's a way to show that they support independent journalism here in New Hampshire. And I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Go to nhjournal.com. At the bottom of the page, you'll see a little uh, support NHJournal thingy, or it's in the newsletter, and you can just subscribe right there. But genuinely appreciate it, so thank you so much. And it turns out that one of the state house malingerers that I know from here in New Hampshire Journal, a uh, lobbyist, uh, uh, Curtis Berry is a longtime horse racing fan and uh, a uh, a friend of mine who's a political flack down south used to live in Kentucky and he's a huge Kentucky Derby guy. So we're going to talk Kentucky Derby here on the podcast coming up in mere moments. First, though, let's get some political and polling analysis from Carlin Bowman with the American Enterprise Institute. So when it comes to what the numbers really say, what Americans are really thinking, I love to just pontificate at the top of my lungs. But we actually have someone on who knows what she's talking about here on the podcast. Carlin Bowman is a distinguished senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. She helped launch AEI's work on public opinion. And in the in the late 70s, when she was still in high school, <laughs> uh, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm delighted to be with you. You uh, got a lot of attention from some smart people I know with your recent review of what Americans really think about abortion and the attendant issues by looking at the survey data over the past. Let me just ask the, the big question. Is America a pro-life country or a, or a pro-choice country? When Gallup asks that question directly, as they have for many years, the country splits equally. And uh, we have, again, a very long-term date on that question. It just goes back and forth on the knife's edge. So now let me ask something that might involve a little more analysis or, or going down to the crosstabs. Are American voters pro-life or pro-choice? This is a very interesting question because for many years in the 80s, the exit pollsters asked voters leaving the polls or voters who just cast their ballots, whether or not they thought abortion was the most important issue to, the, to them in casting their vote. And when they asked that question, more pro-life voters said it was the most important issue to, to them than pro-choice voters did. And unfortunately, the exit pollsters have not asked that question in roughly 15 years. Mm -hmm. So as we get closer to elections and look at registered voters, not those people who are actually gonna turn out to vote, um, the data seem to indicate that it's been a bit of a plus for the pro-life side rather than the pro-choice side. But again, all bets are off, I think, now. Uh, and now I want to ask, and this is, I think, is actually a, a slightly different question. Mm -hmm. How do Americans feel about Roe versus Wade? And I know a lot of people say, well, that means how do they feel about abortion? But actually, I think that in a way, Roe versus Wade has become come almost like a totem, like a touchstone. It's, mm -hmm. it's you know, the, the phrase particularly for voters, say, under 50 or under 40, women voters in that demographic, they just, well, you know, you wake up in the morning, you, you know, you, you go to work, you, have a, you support Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's just, it's just what you do, even if they're not even familiar with what the ruling was, you know, what yeah. it means. So do Americans support Roe versus Wade? 
When you ask the question about whether or not it should be overturned, about 60% of Americans say, no, it shouldn't be overturned. But again, that's just too simple because Americans have long been willing to support very significant restrictions on the use of abortion. Again, Gallup has wonderful trend line data on this, and they ask about trimesters, and you find that Americans oppose uh, legal abortion in the second and third trimester. The question is asked about all three trimesters. So if you, um, again, begin to ask about specifics, it looks very different. And so let's talk about that for a second, because as we record this, we're looking forward to an announcement, uh, or it has been announced, I should say, by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, that he's going to bring the Women's Health Protection Act to the floor. And that is the, the bill that would, people say it would codify Roe versus Wade. I don't think that's actually accurate. It would have a national regime that would essentially say every state must allow abortion uh, up to the day of birth with minimal opportunities for restriction. So as you think about that, what does the polling data tell you about how voters will feel if they find out what's in the bill, as opposed to hearing, I like Roe versus Wade and I like protecting women's health? One of the interesting things in polling is that on many issues, regional or state-by-state -state differences have disappeared, but that's not true on abortion. People in Massachusetts have very different attitudes from people in Mississippi. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of state-by-state -state polling. It's pretty expensive to do. There are not a lot of people who do it regularly, mm -hmm. but the polls suggest, and again, Gallup backs this up by the kind of work that they've done over time, suggesting that there really are very different attitudes in the states, whereas Massachusetts is much more liberal than Mississippi. But when you say liberal, I mean, do you mean a culturally liberal or is it this specific issue of it's abortion? this specific issue. On this specific issue, people in Massachusetts look very different from people in Mississippi. Uh, if somebody uh, is offering voters uh, what, uh, for example, the state of New Hampshire has, which is unrestricted abortion until the sixth month, and then after that, it's you know only narrow circumstances can you get a legal abortion does that seem to be where the voters are based on yeah. how, how far is that from the center of the bell curve well if you think about the trimester question that gallup asks um again they ask that first trimester and people think abortion should be legal in the first three months they don't think it should be legal in the in the next three months or the final three months and so putting a month limit on it um, or a week limit on it, I think is we just, we don't have those kind of questions in public opinion um, or we don't have many of them. We right. certainly have a few, but I'm not, I mean, I think for me, it's just easier to look at the trimester question because I think that that's more understandable to most people. They don't really think, well, they have to sit back and think, well, what does 15 weeks mean? <laughs> yeah. So I, so I like if you ban, so if you said abortion is legal until the third trimester and then it's essentially banned other than a few circumstances, yeah. is, is that yeah. where people are? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you only find a very small, small percentage of Americans supporting abortion in the, in the third trimester. Absolutely. What about a total ban? What about uh, you know, life begins at conception style bands? Um, well, again, it's such a complicated issue. Um, I, I, I haven't seen polling with that particular wording, but we know that, that it, it's interesting in the question about circumstances under which legal abortion should be available. If the pregnancy is something that's outside the woman's control, the health of the mother, um, the health of the, of the fetus or the child, 
or rape or incest, you have overwhelming support for abortion to be legal in the 80 to 90% range. Um, But if the circumstances of the pregnancy are under her own control, it's a very different picture. People are much more ambivalent if a woman wants an abortion because she doesn't want more children, those kinds of things. So you can see that Americans at one and the same time put a very significant value on the sanctity of life and the importance of personal choice. And I think that shows the enormous complexity of this issue. On so many issues where personal choice is involved, um, Americans are a little bit libertarian in those instances, whether it's a decision to smoke, even though they know smoking is harmful, all of those kinds of decisions involving personal choice. People want Americans to be able to make the decisions themselves. But at the same time, they put a great value on the sanctity of human life. And those are deeply complex emotions and feelings. And when you think about it, most people don't want to resolve the tensions in their own thinking about an issue as complex as this. So when that happens on a public policy issue, most people pull away from the issue. They just don't want to be involved. And therefore, you see the activists in the pro-life and the pro-choice camp getting a lot of attention. And the media loves controversy, so they cover those people. Um, But the public is somewhere in between and deeply, deeply complex issues for the public. And I'm not sure that you can reduce it to some of the formulations that people are using today after this opinion leaked. I, I, I think it's a great analysis and it's spot on. And when you have two competing uh, interests that people genuinely believe in, one is no one wants to tell a woman what to do and no one wants to see a baby get hurt. And that's just, that's why I get frustrated with people who get angry on this issue. It's hard. It's just hard. There is no, and, you know, other stuff I get, you know, when you know, I'm a big school choice supporter and when people argue against it, I just like, well, I, don't, I can't even take them seriously. I mean, you, your arguments are awful. You know, yeah. There is no rational argument against it that's being currently being made. But this one, I, you know, everybody, you can see, you can see people of good faith, goodwill. It's just difficult to work with, which is why I want to ask you one last question. So around the country, we have uh, uh, Democrats who are embracing the women's health protection act with its unrestricted abortion. The, the version that already passed the house had bizarre language in it about, we must defend abortion because of white supremacy. It, it ha- actually had references to transgendered men's access to abortion in the bill. Every Democrat in Congress, w- with the exception of, I think, two, have already voted for this. And I'm thinking to myself, I get why people are, are there's a lot of heat right now since the Alito draft leaked. I wonder if being that far out on the limb is going to be a good place to be, say, in three months, four months, five months, when the passions over the row part have ended and people are thinking about your actual stance. Does that seem to be a place where you're going to find a lot of voters? Well, again, I haven't read that language, but it seems pretty extreme. Um, I don't I don't really know. My crystal ball is pretty cloudy on what's going to happen in the next couple of months. I mean, I everybody says to me, well, what do you think is going to happen? What's this going to mean in November? I mean, what we do know is that about 20% of Americans, 20 to 25% in various polls say that the issue is so important to them that they're going to vote on the issue. Um, That's a big single issue vote. Yes, it is. Um, And then when you think about it, a vote, if you ask people about the environment, it is the most important issue to you in casting your vote. That's about three to 5%. Mm -hmm. And so you get a sense of the magnitude of this. And I honestly do not know what will happen in the next few months. Again, I haven't read the language in the Senate bill or in the House bill that passed. And so I really can't comment on that. Well, your comments have been absolutely terrific. And I really appreciate your time. Uh, Carlin Bowman with the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you.
Thanks again to Carlin for joining us here on the New Hampshire Journal podcast. I just want to add some rank punditry that I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't want to put her in a corner on this, but I, just, I want to say what I see is happening as a guy who used to run campaigns and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, take this for what it's worth. I learned a lot from the George Floyd uh, murder and then the reaction to it and then what we've seen since. And uh, the first thing about the George Floyd murder is that it was a murder. The second thing is that the issue of how black Americans are treated by the police and how black Americans perceive that they are treated by the police is a completely real political issue. It's not something that's made up. It wasn't a conspiracy theory. The fact is, as we've reported at nhjournal.com several times, black Americans are actually less likely to be killed by police than white Americans. Uh, But the differential is that black Americans are far more likely to be arrested in the first place because the amount of crime committed by black Americans is so much higher than the crime committed by white Americans, Hispanic, Asian, et cetera. So that's just, those are just data points. That's not opinion. That's just, just facts where we are. Uh, but it's also true that when police officers have encounters with black men, Americans, particularly black males, there's more likely to be a physical encounter. So some dopey white kid, you know, college puke, you know, is whatever, you know, urinating in the shrubs, how often does that en- result in a physical engagement? It's lower than if it's a, a black teenager in a similar circumstance. So those are the facts. And what happened in the wake of the George Floyd murder is that you had this legitimate topic, but then the reaction to it was this huge explosion and people went out on the extremes, whether it was defund the police or ending all cash bail and on and on and on. And you saw a lot of moderate politicians, including Republicans, kind of jump, if not on the bandwagon, they were kind of on the next to the bandwagon. They were on the wagon behind the bandwagon. Governor Chris Sununu, I don't know if you remember this, but at the height of the COVID pandemic, when you know people were being basically in lockdown, Governor Chris Sununu, moderate Republican, New Hampshire, was sending people out in the streets. Yes, march with Black Lives Matter. March in the streets, march. Well, And in the moment of that heat, that passion, that looked like a place to be. But what happened? The passion faded. And when, when that huge wave of anger and passion and concern about, you know, police policy washed away and we went back to our political equilibrium, which is Americans pretty much like the cops and don't like crime. What you had left behind on the beach were all these Black Lives Matter hashtags and a bunch of people going, holy crap. I said out loud in public on Twitter, I wanted to fund the police. This is a disaster. I think you're going to see the same thing with abortion. In the immediate aftermath of the you know, leak of the uh, uh, Alito opinion, You've had this you know, radioactive cloud of, you know, we must defend Roe versus Wade and, and, and et cetera. And no matter how you feel about abortion, th- th- there's a lot of passion. And with that passion comes, for example, the upcoming vote on the Women's Health Protection Act, which, by the way, every Democrat in New Hampshire at the federal level has already voted for at least once. And Senator Hassan and Senator Sheen are going to vote for it again this Wednesday, according to the schedule that uh, that's been put out by the Senate. That bill contains all kinds of extreme stuff. It's got stuff about how we have to protect abortion rights because white supremacy 
is behind the assault on abortion. It's got stuff about men having baby because transgendered men can have babies. And more importantly, the Women's Health Protection Act would mandate nationwide abortion in the second and third trimesters. Late-term abortions would be mandated by the federal government. It's kind of like the abortion version of the voting bill the Democrats were pushing where you were going to have this federal standard. And the fact is, even in one of the most pro-choice states in the country, New Hampshire, most voters don't support third trimester abortions. They don't support late-term abortions. They just don't. And yet, you now have these multiple votes from the Democrats on behalf, saying, yes, we're going to mandate it across the country. We're also going to strip away protections from people of faith who work in hospitals. You don't want to perform an abortion. Tough luck. The federal government would make it harder for you to not participate. Uh, it would end... Uh, rules regarding uh, parental consent and parental notification, so they would take that away from New Hampshire. And right now, in the you know early aftermath of the Alito leak, those positions seem reasonable. Maybe you can win on that. But I predict that two months from now, which by the way is well before the November election, certainly four months from now, which is still before the November election, Those positions are going to look the way hashtag defund the police looks today. In the immediate aftermath, in the immediate passion, completely reasonable. But once the wave washes back out and you're back to normal equilibrium, which is Americans don't want to make abortion illegal. They don't agree that in the first trimester it should be a crime, but they really hate the idea of abortion in the third trimester, late-term abortion. That's where Americans are. They And they've been there, by the way, as you just heard from Carlin Bowman, for 20 years. Getting away from that view, getting out on a limb, is a mistake. The fact is, the abortion tree has very short limbs, either on the right or the left. Most Americans are in the, I think it's icky, I don't want to talk about it. If you have one early, I'm not going to judge you. If you have one late, that's bad. And so that's where we are. Now let's talk about something a lot more fun than that. So everything I know about horse racing, I learned from watching Warner Brother cartoons as a kid. I have no idea what's going on. I don't even pay attention when the Kentucky Derby is happening. But I was astonished to learn that one of the malingerers that I've stumbled across in Concord of the State House, Curtis Berry, is a longtime horse racing aficionado. And in fact, did radio analysis of the Kentucky Derby. So I asked him to join us here on the podcast. Curtis, how are you? I'm terrific. Michael, thank you for having me. Sober mostly. That's all we were asked. And mostly, right. My longtime uh, friend and uh, a former media guy and, and political consultant who also writes for Inside Sources, J. Mark Powell, is a former Kentuckian and a huge, in fact, not only is he a fan of the Kentucky Derby, Curtis Berry, he owns a Derby winner. Is that not correct, J. Mark Powell? It is essentially correct. It's more or less correct. I own one share. I'm one of the 5,314 people who own 10% of the 2020 Kentucky Derby and Breeders' Cup winner authentic. But as I'm fond of saying, uh, that 
that's I own two hairs on his right rump, but that's still 100% more than most Americans will ever own of a derby. Hey, could, uh, Curtis Berry, do you own any part of a derby winner? Of a derby winner, no. I, I once owned a, a small fraction similarly uh, in a three-horse stable. One of the horses got a virus and lost all its hair, so <laughs> I gave that up. So you didn't even own true, the hair. True story. True story, yeah. You know, I saw I saw a wonderful old black and white comedy from the 30s the other day during what was called the golden the golden age of horse racing, you know, during the whole um, uh, Seabiscuit and Man of War era. And uh, the lingo in horse racing is you describe the horse's name from the father out of the mother, right? And so there's a horse auction and it's just this broken down nag. It's just pathetic sagging in the middle. And the auctioneer goes, this is drunkard from whiskey barrel out of distillery. (laughs) (laughs) So let me stop right there before you get into the inside jokes and none of us will get. Curtis Berry, Man About Concord, how did you become a horse racing and Kentucky Derby fan? Well, my father was a fan of horse racing. And, you know, I like to tell people an exaggeration, obviously, that he taught me how to read using the racing form. But uh, (laughs) it's an exaggeration, ladies and gentlemen, because Curtis Berry cannot, in fact, read. But anyway, go ahead. (laughs) True enough. Uh, uh, But, you know, as a kid, made frequent trips to Rockingham Park, the old rock. Um, You know, there was none better and uh, frequent trips uh, in the summer to Saratoga. So uh, I it just, it, it's a hobby uh, and uh, I enjoy, you know, the handicapping of the Kentucky Derby, especially because the horses are young and, and, and they're fresh. It's sort of a, a blank slate. And you used to talk Derby talk on the radio here in the Granite State. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so friends of mine, uh, local radio, Peter St. James, Ken Kale uh, would invite me on uh, the Friday morning, day before the Derby, uh, you know, and I did that for, for quite a while, about 20, 30 years. And J. Mark Powell, uh, how did you get the horse racing bug? My family watched it on television every year. I distinctly remember watching Secretariat in 1973 when I was 12. 14, we went on a big vacation, and we went to Churchill Downs in Louisville. It was not during racing season, so that didn't have much impact on me. Uh, then I wound up moving to Kentucky, and uh, I still watch the Derby. I can, I, I can tell you from memory almost where I was when I watched any derby on any given year for the last 50 years. And you have a bunch of derby collectibles? But yes, I do. But but, uh, what finally happened was I moved to Kentucky in 1998 and the very first thoroughbred race I attended in person, I picked the winner. And it's much like cracked cocaine where they give you the first (laughs) hit for free to get you addicted. And uh, I was hooked from then on. I have every Kentucky Derby glass from 1955 through this year. Uh, I've got a lot of Kentucky Derby tickets programs. I've got a secretariat program. Uh, interestingly, I had a good friend in Louisville after long after I'd left, who every year during the last decade, the, what do we call them, the O's, the aughts, whatever that decade was, every year I would give her money and she would place a $2 win <laughs> bet on each and every horse in the Derby. And there are people ah. who collect derby slips, winning derby slips. And it says on, on the slip where it was printed. You can, you know, you can bet on it in Vegas, but that's not a big deal. But, right. you know, a winning, there are people who collect winning derby slips, you know, number six, Churchill Downs, May 3rd, 2008, whatever. So he would do that every year for the whole decade. So I have the entire decade wow. of 
mm. every horse. Well, ironically, Curtis will, will remember this. I believe it was it 2005. Curtis Giacomo won. It was one of the biggest long shots. It was like sounds right. Yeah, 55 to one. So my two dollar bet won 110 dollars. Wow. And I agonized. You have one year mm. after Derby to cash in your bet stuff. And it's like, okay, do I get 110 bucks <laughs> cash in hand? But I've also got a collectible that's only going to go up in value over the years because nobody bet on the horse. So what that's did right. you do? That's why I was, I kept it. I'm still bad. I cannot believe you. knowing how cheap you are, Powell. I cannot believe. <laughs> oh, I agonized. I, I, sweat I, I can't I even imagine. Absolutely. So let's get down to brass tacks. we got the Kentucky. By the way, the way you know a real racing fan is they pronounce it Louisville and not Louisville. Because it is impossible to, having lived there three years, I can tell you, it is impossible to slur the name of that city too much. If you say, ooh, that's okay, <laughs> too. <laughs> so, Curtis Berry, what is going to happen in the 2022 Kentucky Derby? Uh, there will be 20 horses that leave the gate, and they'll run <laughs> a mile and a quarter, uh, and somebody will win. And who will that winning horse be? I like uh, Mo Donegal, the number one horse uh, okay. for a lot of reasons. I think the horse had a, a, a astonishingly, astonishingly fast time uh, in his last race in, in uh, the Wood Memorial. Uh, likewise, the last eighth of a mile that he ran was uh, under 12 seconds. Um, and, and if you have a Kentucky Derby entrant that's running the last eighth of a mile under 13 seconds, that's the, you know, the top tier under ah, 12 seconds is okay. unusual. So he's got something left. And in, in this race where they're all three-year-old horses running for the first time at this distance, a mile and a quarter, right? Having some gas in the tank at the end of the race is important. Uh, and he's got it, um, uh, as, uh, as shown by the data. So I, I like number one, Mo Donegal. And most importantly, he's 10 to one morning odds, which means there's money to be made, win, place, or show. Excellent. Now, if you didn't pick Mo, who would you pick? Uh, I like number three, Epicenter. Um, it's, it's a decent post position also. Uh, very good times likewise. Um, the Epicenter will get out of the gate, should get out of the gate and run the first quarter of a mile. Uh, a little bit faster and it should mm -hmm. be at the lead. Um, but I'm thinking the number one is going to have uh, more at the end of the race. So Powell, what do you think of uh, Curtis's analysis? Uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty spot on. I like his second pick is my second pick also at the center. Uh, but I'm going out on a limb and I'm doing something very unusual, by the way, with a few exceptions, such as, uh, oh, my memory's failing me, 2015, was that American Pharaoh, Curtis? Boy, you know, I, I don't have that memory, but the, the timing is about right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, the American Pharaoh was supposed to just go in and blow everybody else away, and he did. Typically, that was the exception rather than the rule. Typically, the front runner never wins the Derby. By the way, America Pharaoh uh, won the 2015 Kentucky Derby. That's according to Google. Do I do I win a toaster or something for getting it correct? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but so 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 front runners do not have a good history, right? Of of, of coming through in the Derby. Uh, I'm I'm going to go with a long shot. Uh, it's a hunch. Uh, I like Charge It, number eight. He has only run three times, and in the past 50 years, well, matter of fact, the entire 147 years. Uh, only two Derby winners have won with just three starts prior. Hmm. Uh, he was unimpressive in two, and he came in very solid the second in the Florida Derby. He's been going through a lot of, of uh, 
training and if they can get some focus and development on them. Eight's not the best pole post positions, but it's not the worst either. Um, and, that, and we talked about this before. This is the wrap on the Derby. You have 20 horses. That's not a horse race. That's a cavalry charge. That's a stampede. Right. So you can have a course, horse that's a really good horse. That is a, you know, there's a lot of these people who have horses that are so-so, but they want the prestige of saying this horse once ran in the Kentucky Derby, even though it has no realistic chance of winning. So you get a bunch of those in cluttering up the field. Uh, and so you can get a good horse that has a realistic shot of winning. It gets a bad post position. It gets a bad break. And then it costs, gets caught behind a traffic jam. And it's, you know, frankly, screwed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I just feel that maybe charge it. This is, this is due for a little luck. Uh, interestingly enough, I read a survey by the university, a study, excuse me, a study done by the University of Kentucky when I lived there. And this was 25 years ago. Uh, actually 30 years ago and I found it very interesting they studied people who bet on racehorses right. and what they found was if you have a system an organized system and you are consistent with that whether you bet hunches whether you bet the horse's track record whether you bet the jockey's riding record whether you bet the bloodline whether you bet the color of the horse I have a friend who only bets on grays <laughs> if you have a system and you stick with it you have a one in three chance of winning consistently. Regardless of wow. Well, my and system I have, is, I have I, no system, by the way. I, I, I bet on the horse that has the most of, uh, uh, has a name related to vice. And so I'm betting Tawny port number 18 because it's booze. <laughs> and so that's my vote. I'm making the booze vote. Although tis the bomb with its indirect connections to terrorism was tempting. I'm sticking to uh, to Tawny Port. Hey, let me ask you guys about you mentioned the jockeys. Any jockey stories this year? You know, that's one of the things that they do on the broadcast. They talk up the backstory, et cetera. It's like the Olympics. Everyone's got to cry. How do they teach the horses to cry? I have no idea. But um, uh, any jockey uh, stories we should know, guys? I, I, Curtis, I don't know any this year. I haven't no, following that closely, to be honest with you, on jockeys. Yeah, and, and Michael, truthfully, I you know what I look at most in the Kentucky Derby is the data. So you know a lot of the other stuff for me is, is just noise. You know who right. the father is, who the mother is. You know the, whether they took a school bus or a you know a charter <laughs> jet to the Kentucky Derby. All of that's irrelevant. It's how fast the horse can run. It, it, that said, you know it, in, in some races. You know, typical race at a typical track in the middle of the summer, a jockey can make the difference. This is the Kentucky Derby, right? It right. is the preeminent horse race in the world, one of them. And every jockey deserves to be there. Every horse deserves to be there. Okay. So I don't think that that's an edge. Last you know, question. Michael, I had a, I had a, one last thing super fast. I had a, a good friend for many years when we worked together uh, from Boston, who was a huge hockey fan. And we would always have these fun, good natured, knockdown, drag out arguments. And they're all good sport about whether horse racing or, or hockey was the better sport. Right. And he finally said to me, just give me one reason, just give me one reason why horse racing is a better sport than hockey. And I said, simple, the rules are easier. Get on the horse, go that way, go fast, Boom, it's done. <laughs> no penalties, no timeouts, no periods, just go do it. So who is the greatest racehorse of all time, starting with you, J. Mark Powell? In the Derby or of all times? Of all difference. times, of all time. Man, we could. You're you're opening a can of worms here. And that's you the point. Really opening a can of worms. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think it's that that difficult. Personally. Who is it? Secretariat. I mean, you look at the the Belmont Stakes, right? The third leg of the Triple Crown, and the distance that that horse ran, and the time 
there, there will never be another animal like that. Uh, it, it's just, you know, an awesome uh, uh, sight, even if you just watch it on YouTube. I, you know, if the famous, the famous match race between Seabiscuit and Manowar, if I had been there in 1938, I would have bet the farm on Manowar. Right. Hmm. Uh, he just, everything was there. He was big, strong, powerful locomotive, and he lost this little heart, this little racehorse that outran him. Uh, but I'm just going to have to agree with Curtis. I don't think it's any contest. I think it's secretary. And let's wrap mind. up our Kentucky Derby with this. Powell, how will you spend your Kentucky Derby day? Uh, quaffing mint juleps, uh, fried chicken. There's, there's, a, there's a whole, I've been to three derbies. A friend of mine's, friend of mine's grandfather before World War II bought box seats on Derby Day at Churchill Downs just past the finish line. That's the way to watch the Derby. Wow. Yeah. Spectacular. And I had the good fortune to be her guest there three times. And there's a whole tradition of things with fried chicken and coleslaw you're supposed to take to the track with you. And then everybody gets lit up. Uh, so I'll be having chicken legs and getting lit up. And every year at about 6 p.m., I tell myself, I'm not going to cry when they sing my old Kentucky home. This year, I'm not going to cry. And tears will I'll be I, I sing out loud with it. I sing along with it. Uh, and tears will go down my my cheeks. And uh, then I'll spend Sunday sobering up and, you know, ruining the money I lost. Well, you know, with a day like that, who cares about the horse race? Curtis Berry, uh, troublemaker from Concord, J. Mark Powell, uh, Southern Reprobate. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Please find us on Twitter, New Hamp Journal, on Facebook, NH Journal, and of course at nhjournal.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. I'm Michael Graham with Inside Sources. Thanks again for listening.